Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women. So I want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. Listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit latinatolatina.com for more. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. Now, each of those women gets to pick someone from her life to talk to. Last episode, my friend Sosie Bacon spoke with her mom, Kira Sedgwick. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode, one of my closest friends from the work world, Jing Cao, is talking with someone from her life. If you missed my interview with Jing, go back to episode two. Let's get to it. All right. Are you ready? Hey. I'm so ready. I'm kind of nervous. Don't be nervous. <laughs> so my name is Jin Cal. I am the head of user engagement at Courts. My name is Danielle Guillen. I am the director of organizing and policy for Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education, I'm specifically working in the Board of Education District 5. So I am in my apartment in New York. Oh my goodness. I am in my hotel room at a conference I'm going to present at. And so my hotel room is like the perfect Danielle room. It's like, has a sparkly headboard, some glass dresser drawers, some nice, beautiful blue and gold wallpaper that is patterned. And if you know me, that is like my signature. And this beautiful blue velvet chair. (laughs) Perfect. So we're going to start with your life story. So pretend I don't know anything and start from the very beginning. (laughs) So I was born and raised in the Inland Empire, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. And so I was raised in the city of Redlands, which is in the county of San Bernardino. And San Bernardino County is is the largest county in the United States. And so I was raised in a family that moved from 
The city next door where my grandparents grew up and met in middle school to the town right over. And so I grew up my whole life kind of separated from the extended family. And growing up there is super interesting because it wasn't until later in life that I realized that I grew up in a very like Latino side of town until I was, you know, in middle school. And it was there that I kind of didn't even realize that my town was planned in a certain way. And so it was planned in the way where like Latinos lived on one side of the freeway and white people lived on the other. Um, And it wasn't until a moment in, I was 17 actually, and I was in my U.S. history class when somebody mentioned that. We were talking about redlining and we were talking about, you know, segregation of cities. And somebody was like, well, that's just like Redlands. And I looked at Joel at the time and I was like, wow, um, what do you mean? And so he was like, yeah, when you go under the freeway, in his words where it gets scary. I never viewed my community as scary. And it was this interesting moment of kind of having this realization that people don't view the people that I love in the same way that I do. um, And they don't necessarily view them positively. And so that was this moment of kind of understanding where I fit in all of this, but also, you know, having been tracked into gifted classes since before I could remember and having to go to a school outside of my neighborhood school what I really realized was that I also had to live a lot of different lives. So when I was at my grandparents' house on the north side, I was one way. When I was in class, I was another. When I was with my friends, I, you know, I was in a different space. And so it's been this interesting trajectory of kind of navigating a lot of different worlds and feeling like they're all my worlds, but they're all quite not mine at the same time. The schools that you were in, were they less diverse? Was it more white then? Like, how did the segregation work? It was really diverse in terms of we pulled from a lot of different towns. And so I also grew up in a town that had like a small agricultural area. So one part of town had like a lot of orange trees and we had like migrant farm workers. And but we also had a lot of students who were like Chinese and like Seventh-day Adventists or, you know, East Asian. And so we were kind of all lumped together at our high schools and our middle schools. But what was super interesting is that a lot of it was land based. So like A lot of, like, our Asian community members lived in the city of Loma Linda, where the hospital was. A lot of our Latinos lived in one area. Um, Growing up, there were very few, like, African-American families. I can count on one hand the number of people who were African-American. So they all lived in, like, a different part of town. And then we had predominantly, like, upper class and or white who were living on different parts of town. So it was really land-based, and I didn't really realize it until, you know, I was looking through the history and kind of had this realization about like my community. So it was interesting because it was diverse religiously. It was diverse ethnically and racially, but it wasn't really diverse in terms of like the people who you interacted with. So it really kept like social networks to those people that looked just like you. You know, you, you talked earlier about how you had to kind of play these different roles. Can you talk more about that? Like who was the Danielle with your grandparents? Who was the Danielle at school? Who was the Danielle, you know? <laughs> I like to kind of brand myself now as like a connector of people, like a collector and a connector, right? I think that it was during school that I really got to like love other people's stories and like got to witness people who are different than I am. And then also had my story, which, you know, going back to my home community was super common. We all lived in the same place. We all saw the same things. We all had like very similar foods and diets. And so having that be appreciated as well was, I think, something that was new for me. And so I kind of played that role. And I think I can talk to pretty much anyone about anything because I was put in so many different situations where I had to. 
I got to experience a lot of that with you when we went to college together. I want you to paint a picture for people who didn't get to experience it like I did, what your culture is like, like what your community is like. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's wild. If you've ever been to the IE, um, we have like Hell's Angels like stationed there. Actually, I was just back home for my sister's birthday and she had her party at like this country bar that did like a mimosa brunch and like all of the Vagos, which is a biker gang from the IE, hundreds of them green leather their bikes parked out we're in the the big dining room this restaurant which has like taxidermied cattle on the wall and serves like really good steak was also like the site of one of the trump rallies in the ie and also like had like a lot of you know our our notorious like sons of anarchy biker gangs are housed like a mile from where i grew up and so it's interesting it's like it is a very conservative area regardless of north or south but i think it was that mixed in with like this interesting culture that the Inland Empire has um, that is just very specific because there's not only diversity of race, there's diversity of religion, and then there's diversity of like political and life experience. And then it's like I grew up in what I would identify now as like a very Chicano based culture. And so I didn't realize what that meant until I went to college, actually. So there is a moment in my history classes where they, they asked this question. And they were like, hey what are you? And it was my history of Mexico class. And I remember being like, oh, I'm Mexican. And the response was like, are you Mexican? Are you Mexican-American? And that was the first time in my life that I had distinguished the two because back home, that's not how you distinguish what it means to be like a first-generation American versus like my family, who's been in the Inland Empire from honestly up to five generations. And so I, I heavily identify with Chicano culture, which, you know, comes with like lowriders and bike culture and oldies and home-based music that like no one knows outside of the Inland Empire and like it comes with like barbecues and garnasada it comes with like those elements of Mexican culture but then you twist it and you have all of these cool additions that were created when like my grandparents were growing up. So Chicano then is what exactly? So back in the day Mexican Americans were not quite filling they have this phrase of like, neither aquí, neither ya. Like, it literally means like, neither from here or from there. And so, what was happening to Mexican American identity in this time period was that there has always been in Southern California people from Mexico. So, you get this like beautiful influx of culture that's heavily tied to the cultural traditions of Mexico. And then you get first and second and third generation Mexican Americans that kind of didn't have this culture because at the time there was this weird dichotomy of like, if you're closer to celebrating culture that's coming from Mexico, Mexican culture, right, you're, you're more like them. Or if you're more on the other spectrum, which is like, you're more like an atypical, what we think of American middle class family, you're more American. And then we got this influx of, you know, people kind of in the middle ground saying like, neither of these things represent me fully, like I am my own identity. And so we kind of see like the zoot suits come out of a Mexican-American culture. We see kind of these rises of countercultures that then get identified as Chicano culture and then is like one of the catalysts for the Chicano rights movement, right? Which is this reclaiming of identity within the Mexican-American community. So like Chicano then sounds like it's more of like a subsection of a broader Mexican-American identity. Yeah. Do you still feel that that's kind of the strongest cultural identity for yourself? No, what's interesting is this is that the conversation I was having today. I had a conversation with my cousin 
And I remember telling her, like, I felt more Mexican, aka like Chicana, when we were younger than I do now. And I and I think what's interesting is like after having gone to college, after kind of my parents gaining more income over the years, after being like literally streamlined into middle class culture, like strong middle class culture or higher middle class culture, I don't. There are a lot of cultural components that I think were there because of everyone's income. And so it's interesting because now I even see my own family kind of this shift from like us celebrating like Christmas Eve at my great grandfather's to us being like, oh, let's bring great grandpa with us to like Big Bear and go rent a cabin. Right. And there's this different the more income we get, the more I kind of see us as a, a collective move away from what we would do when I was a kid. We're reclaiming again, like, well, well, then what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to be three generations out? What does it mean to be five generations out on my dad's side? Like, what does that mean? And then how do we, like, weave it together considering, like, now we all have a lot more stable jobs and, like, just more income. Like, literally, that's probably the biggest factor. It seems to me like you're actually identifying as Chicano Mm -hmm. to being lower income. One of my favorite foods growing up is my grandpa would always eat a tortilla, and then he'd put... It sounds gross, but it's so good. Don't knock it till you try it. He'd put, like, mayonnaise, and then he'd, like, fry, like, bologna (laughs) and put it in there. And, oh, my God, it's so good. I've given up that lifestyle, but, like, (laughs) for health reasons, not taste. So good. But then I was talking to my dad, and this was, like, years after my grandpa passed. And my dad was, like, talking about this delicacy, right, with his coworkers. They're all kind of similar in terms of age and identity and, like, generational like being in California for a long time they were like all lit up because they're like oh my god yeah we would like eat it all the time like it's so good and so what's super interesting about that is like one of the coworkers was like <laughs> we would eat it but then I realized like we ate it because we were like poor and I had this moment of being like well that was my snack and I mean we were lower income but like you know we weren't We were like lower middle class at that point. And what was super interesting is I had that moment of being like, well, those are the things that are getting passed down to me. And I still love it, but it's this moment of kind of like, yeah, that's income-based as opposed to like what we think culture. On to college. Where did you go? What was your experience like? So I met you at Yale University, which is lovely. I remember opening the acceptance letter rushed home with my best friend and like another friend of ours like skipped six period was like sorry teacher like I gotta go open this letter it's really important we get there and I'm like come to the kitchen like I'm gonna turn it and my friends like rush and I press the button and then the sound is off and it just pops up and it's like welcome to the class of 2013 and so then I call my parents and my parents are at Shakey's which is a fine dining pizza establishment (laughs) celebrating my dad's birthday and so they have all the family there and my mom answers the phone because they're together and they're like hi Danielle like put me on speaker so everyone can say hi and I'm like you will not believe what just happened and they're like are you okay like what happened did you break the house and I was like I got into Yale and at that moment my mom and dad start screaming and they're just like oh my goodness Danielle got into Yale Danielle got into Yale and all of my family and all of Shakey's is like cheering in the background. You just like hear people crying and like, I still get teary eyed about it because like generations had worked so hard to even do things like get me to a different school that like, it felt like a win for everyone. Like not just me, but like all of my family members, like everyone in the IE. And like, just to put this into context, like I was one of four people from the whole county. Like I said, the 
biggest county in the U.S. to, like, get in. It was this really special moment. And then it turned into, like, a whole different thing once I was there. (laughs) Go on. I don't know if you feel this way, but I just felt like it was so hard. You know, my family was wealthier than most people in my county, but my county is average income at the time was very low. And then to go to a place like Yale and like figure out that people took cotillion classes, like I still don't know what those are. And like, I would have simple questions that made me feel really dumb at the time. Like, well, why are you using a fork if it's a fork, right? Like, like I, why does it have to be smaller as opposed to longer? Like these things I had never seen before. I think for me, the educational inequity, I think was super hard. And the racial inequity is so so clear in the Northeast in a way that, you know, there is a range of colorism and discrimination in the Latino community, but as a whole, we are just so many different cultures and, like, literal different, like, skin colors. Like, it's harder to recognize those fine lines of, like, all the workers are people of color and all the managers are not. It was the first time I had been out of my element, and I had never been out of my element before. And so that was hard along class lines. It was hard being a first-generation college student and being like, what in the world am I doing? I mean, I pretty much like was like, okay, I know this person's doing it well. Let me hang out with them so I can do what they're doing. Like, I was like, I'm going to learn by modeling. <laughs> like, And then I think, too, the other part was hard was like, Yale's just, it is a weird subculture that I haven't yet encountered in this world. So it was hard to adapt to, like, almost the other end of the spectrum, including, like, not having, like, a huge hub of, like, a a homogenous POC community that I was used to having. What about you? I don't think I struggled in the same way that you did. It it was really hard for me to understand at first when I would see other people who had lived much more fortunate lives than me struggling. Mm. Because for things that I at the time thought were really not that big of a deal. like And we talk about this a lot, like that suck it up culture. Yeah. Yeah, I think I struggle with this question a lot about, like, healing in class. There's, like, that empathy that I almost sometimes lack. And I will say, like, since moving to Los Angeles, I realized how fortunate I was to have grown up in the Inland Empire. But is there is, like, that lack of empathy for, like, something that isn't on a gradient as hard as you. And then the other thing, like, I realized is all the microwaves in which my own traumas, like, how that kind of mindset like actually distances you from somebody when actually what you want is like that connection. Post Yale life, what did you do? I did Teach for America and I got placed in the state of New Mexico in Gallup, which is kind of like hailed the capital of Indian country and is like on state land and literally smack dab in the middle of the Navajo Nation. A mile or two out of town, you're on the Navajo Nation. A mile or two out the other way, you're on the Navajo Nation. Like four corners of it, you're like there. And so I taught math and social studies. And so that was interesting to go from New Haven, Connecticut, where I was learning that different forks meant different things, to then go to the reservation where like some of my students didn't have running water or electricity. It was this just interesting dichotomy and it was to then be flipped on the other side of, like, poverty in America and to go from, like, the wealthiest culture in America and the highest educated culture in America to, like, a school system that was, like, 49th in the country at the time in the worst school system in the state of New Mexico. Why did you do Teach for America? I just care for the well-being of kids. School had always been my safe haven, regardless of what was going on at home or what was going on, just what was going on, right? 
And it was something that I was good at. So I thought, you know, there's that attachment. And I think education for me has been like, you know, as the first person in my family to not only go to college, but to kind of really put education at the forefront of what I wanted. It was something that I thought was super important for all people. And now that I'm 10 years into it from like 19 year old Danielle to now, I realize it really is about like child welfare and like schools serving students because schools are the place in which we require students to go, but also the place in which like we could have such an impact on like their healing or their processing or like, you know, them having an adult that they feel safe with, which is all important for our society and for like them as people. Talk about what you experienced in New Mexico, what you saw with the children, what you saw with the schools. I think what I saw overall at the schools, it was the first time that schools had not been safe for kids. And I say that not in a way to like dismiss the hard work of everyone that was there, but just in a way of like the year I left, half of the school was subs. Then of the people who were there, like, you know, you see everything from like people who have been accused of sexual violence and assault against minors in our school systems just being juggled around. Just everything from those injustices to students where like students didn't feel safe and It was an interesting moment being in my classroom because in terms of the adults at the school, with the exception of, you know, a couple, I genuinely felt like people were trying to do what was best for kids. And it kind of led me on this question of like, well, then what is happening? Because kids don't feel safe here. We're not doing justice to like the brilliance that I see. And investigating that question led me down this really, I think it's led me down this really interesting path. But like, I think what was so hard about being in the classroom is like, There were so many moments in my time teaching where I was like, am I doing justice for kids? Like, if I suspend my student, who is one of the only African-American students in our school system, do I contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline? If I am having a not-great day and I'm mean to my students, am I contributing to this lack of school culture? Like, you have those, like, moments where you're like, am I a part of the system? Am I complicit in this? And There were some times where I was like, yeah, like, yeah, you are. And like, yeah, you have, you almost have to be. And it it was this interesting moment where, you know, I I know my students knew I loved them. And they would always say all the time, like, Miss Gian, I know you like feel things for us. And I was like, oh, that's good. Because I don't know if I feel things for like anyone else besides (laughs) y'all. Like, (laughs) y'all, you like, honestly, they were the first group of people that I knew I loved. And it was like, outside of my family, and of course, my friends. I would do things for them, like stay until six or seven that I don't think I would do for any other human because it's like, I just cared about them getting home safely. Or like, you know, when you love somebody, you give them like bathroom breaks when you're not supposed to, because the rules say that you're not supposed to, but you're like, your dad just died. So I'm going to let you stay 40 minutes in the restroom. Cause I just know that like right now, that's like what you need. Do you feel like overall you had made a positive ex- impact on these kids? Yes, because I think in a school system that, like, I worked in in Gallup-McKinley County, like, it was hard not to make a positive impact if you were at least trying to do your job. Do I feel always secure in that impact? No. Does it motivate me to, like, take that experience every step of the way that I go? Yes. I think what's hard when you're dealing with a system of humans is, like, you're dealing with a system of humans. (laughs) And, like, fundamentally, that's what education is. And so I think, like, you know, we like to blame or talk about resources when I think, honestly, like we should start talking about like, how do we create school systems that are mission aligned, regardless of district, charter, traditional, non-traditional, private, and that really are mission aligned around like, put kids at the center. 
and have conversations about children and impacts on kids. What did you do after Teach for America? Where are you now? After Teach for America, I went to Los Angeles. And after grad school, I went to USC to get my master's of public policy. And so after grad school, I started here in my current role as the director of organizing and policy. So I work for one of the school board districts, which is served by a school board member, and I am their policy person. Our office really values collaboration with our parents and our school leaders and our teachers, and so we really value that voice and how it affects our policy decisions. And so I run all of those initiatives that make sure voice and like talent is like recognized properly, and then I also do all of our policy stuff. What is your personal mission statement? What drives you? My personal mission statement, I think, is like just caring about children and caring about child well-being for kids, and that's it. Speaking of kids, what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you want to grow up to be? I wanted to be Selena. You know this about me. Like the singer, stop. (laughs) Oh, okay. Stop. (laughs) No, I remember. Stop. Not like Selena Gomez, but like Selena Quintanilla. Yeah, she's fabulous still. Do you sing? Not well, so it's just like a dream. Like, it was a goal of mine. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard you sing before. Now that you're an adult, what do you want to be when you grow up now? Oh, my gosh. I just want to be retired. (laughs) Like, best life on a beach, chilling, some white sand, blue ocean, maybe somewhere in Colombia, Cartagena, oh, Playa Blanca. Yes, I want to be retired. Like, I'm looking forward to this. (laughs) Like, I want to do all the good work, and then I want to leave it with all the people that I've developed to be badasses and just, like, know that the world is safe in the hands of all these dope people. Hi, Shira. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? It's good. How about you? I'm good. I just got off a Skype call with our intern, Emma, in North Carolina. How convenient. It was so convenient. She was having problems with the CRM, and I was able to chat with her over Skype and walk her through it. It was fantastic. Aren't we lucky? Because this first season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. And Jing and Danielle actually used Skype for their interview. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether it's one-on-one or in groups. And people also use Skype to send instant messages and share files and send gifts. So thank you to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the one on this episode, that doesn't mean that Skype approves of or agrees with any of the opinions being shared. Those belong solely to the people who are speaking them. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bye. When do you think you first felt politically aware or were interested in politics or were involved in some way? I think I have this belief that political awareness isn't like political awareness. It's like a way of being. Because I think a lot of my political views are like, can we be nice to people? My first injustice that I remember happened when I was like six. And I was in Tijuana with my grandparents. And we were there for the day, and it was super fun. And then I remember when we were leaving and trying to go across the bridge, I there was a lot of children, and they were selling gum. And, like, I made my grandfather spend, like, $100, which is a lot for us at the time, on buying gum because I was like, they're my age. Like, you have to give them money. 
And then I, I remember seeing this boy out of the corner of my eye and he had some type of physical disability and he was blind. And so he's sitting on the floor and he was selling like these little hand drums. I remember distinctly, it was like these two women and I'm going to just call it out because they were white women and that made me uncomfortable in a different way. And so there was these two white women and they were bartering with him. And these hand drums were like, even at the age of like six or seven, I was like, they seem reasonable. They're like $5 and they're like handcrafted. And like, he wasn't budging at first. And so they went to walk away and he like had this moment where he literally like screamed out and he was like, no, 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 don't go like, please. And then he sold them at the price that they're asking for. But there was that moment in that desperation in his voice that left me super uneasy. And I had this moment of being like, they were American, right? Regardless of race, there there was an ability to pay there. And like, clearly he needed the money and it left me really uneasy. And so I think that's like my political views of like, be a nice human and like help people out when they need help. And I think that was one of those first moments where I was like, oh no, like something needs to be done about this. Like this is not fair or moral or just or whatever. What do you think is the first time you saw an injustice and you acted on it? Honestly, it wasn't until later in life. I think I grew up in an area where like there was so many injustices. And I think, you know, I grew up in that conservative mindset of like suck it up or like this happens to everyone. When I moved to LA, I think I found my voice as like an organizer. And so I now sit on the neighborhood council. And so we'll have people come and try to do crazy things in the neighborhood. And so we had like one of our council members come because they wanted to put a temporary housing structure, but they wanted to put it on the only plot of land that the kids, really kids have access to in terms of green space in the area. And so I just questioned him. I was like, listen, there's no green space. Kids walk 15 minutes or more to get here. You have three schools across the street from this park. What is your recommendation for like safety? If you're going to do this, like where do kids get green space? He's like, oh, we're going to put a tennis court up top. And then what else did he say? He's like, oh, we're going to have more patrols. And then I was like, but you know, a lot of these people are undocumented in our communities. And there's not a, there's not a, a great relationship with the police in this area. And so I'm like, more cops actually doesn't lead to like more trust. I mean, the establishment was built already. Now it's built, but it's those moments of like really questioning and like getting people to think and not feeling afraid to call out like the city council member himself and just saying like, I really want you to consider these things because like if you're not considering these things in a way that's thoughtful or data driven, like I was having to give him data on an area that he should know, then I think we're really doing an injustice In terms of being politically active, do you vote? Are you a voter? Oh, yeah. But I didn't start voting until later in my Yale career. And that was for no reason other than, like, it was hard to try to get a ballot to California where my heart was. And and now I know the importance of, like, voter disenfranchisement, especially for, like, communities of color. What are the issues that drive you to vote? Or what are the issues you consider when you vote? I have a Spanish tutor who went from Cuba to Venezuela, and I was asking him about voting because there was an election in L.A., and he was like, Danielle, like, now that I'm a citizen, you don't know how good it feels to vote. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, when I was in Cuba, when I was in Venezuela, it felt like, yeah, you had to go to the ballot boxes, but your vote didn't count for anything because, you know, Fidel Castro was still going to be president. In Venezuela, like, voter just kind of disenfranchisement is huge, like, rigging the voting systems. And so he was just this moment of, like, when I voted in the U.S., even though my person may not have won or my issue may not have won, like, the simple act of voting and having it represent my voice 
was so impactful. And I think it was that moment where I was like, oh, I'm humble just to be able to vote now, right now in my life, especially like when I listen to my community members who are undocumented and that being like something that they wish they can do. And so like, that's kind of where I'm at politically with voting. I mean, education does get me out to vote. Issues that impact kids in neighborhoods that are like extremely local out get me out to vote. But like voting itself gets me out to vote now to just like have that voice. I feel really grateful to those people for reminding me of that. Where are your politics compared to your family's? They're just very different. I sometimes look at my family and I love them to pieces, but I'm like, I don't know how we are genetically linked sometimes because our political views differ across the spectrum and across the spectrum on different issues. How do you discuss politics with them? Do you? Yeah, my grandpa had this moment where he made me so proud and he made me realize why I have such high expectations of men in my life. For my grandparents, race is a big issue because they grew up, they were 13 in 1968. They grew up in schools that were segregated and they grew up in schools where they got paddled for speaking Spanish. They grew up in school systems that just didn't value them. And so he was reading AOC quotes and it was about race and like her political views and I forget it. But it's super interesting to engage them and then talk about implicit bias and talk about, you know, well, then what are the assumptions that we hold when we say certain things about certain groups of people? And like, how does that translate then to our politics? And, you know, like, I think sometimes people in my more liberal camp of like my friends and like our generation of millennials are always like those conservatives, lottie, lottie, lottie. And what I find more often than not is like if I engage my family who tends to lead conservatively or engage my community members back home who for sure lead conservatively, more often than not, I find kind of the common thread and you're able to use that common experience to then flip and be like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. If we could imagine a world where that didn't happen to you and instead this happened to you, would you, what would you do instead? I think, you know, you have a lot of different communities. Can you define what community means to you? I think community is where you feel loved. I moved to MacArthur Park, and I had never felt a part of a community in the way I feel a part of this community. And I think it's because it's like, no matter what I do, for better or for worse, sickness or in health or whatever that those vows are, like, I feel really loved for just being myself. Having people be vulnerable with you, like, that's what community should feel like for everyone. And I think that's like what community feels like back home, at least with my family, right? Like, yeah, we're saying wild things today, but also, like, I know that I love you to the core of my being and that we're going to do this together, right? Like, you are not leaving this conversation or this dinner without at least reflecting on what you say and, like, make sure it aligns to, like, your true core values. And I think that's an act of love. I love that. So we, we know where your home community lies in terms of politics. What about your new community? Where do they align or not align with you on politics? LA is the friendliest, most liberal city I've ever lived in. And so they're very aligned to like my politics now. And honestly, sometimes even more radical than I have imagined the world could be, which is, I think, super humbling because it's like taking it a step further. You know, in LA, it's cool because we have conversations of like, what would it look like if we had no jails, right? And in my mind, prior to engaging in these conversations, like I had never thought outside of that dichotomy And I think it's cool to be with people who really push you in that way. And so I think politically, my community, especially in like MacArthur Park, my community, when it comes to certain issues like immigration and, you know, citizenship status and like income based reforms, like social reforms, they're very radical in a way that I appreciate being challenged on on the day to day. Do you feel challenged in the same way, but 
on the other spectrum when you go home and, and talk to your home community? I think perspective is everything. And so it's an equally intriguing to then imagine a world where you're like, you know, when you're a question of like, well, why do you believe that, right? Like, I don't know, right now I'm on like food insecurity for undocumented people, right? Like to make them a part of like the system, like the SNAP benefits. And people are like, well, why is that necessary when there's churches? That's a different challenge, but it helps me become better and really to figure out like, well, well, then what do I believe, right? Is it just rhetoric or is it a core value? And if it is a core value, why? And I think those conversations are productive and fruitful. How does politics affect your day-to-day life? Does it, do you think? I was like, my whole life is politics at this point. So give me a point where it's not <laughs> my workout, <laughs> my gym. No, no, but, but like to you personally, like the things that you are involved in politically from a school system perspective, like that affects the school system. Like you're not a student, you're not a teacher. It doesn't really impact you. Mm-hmm. Has politics or does politics affect you personally? I think this is a really good place in the conversation to say because I'm more light-skinned than like your average Latinx person. I benefit from whiteness and therefore I benefit from the policies of the U.S. a lot more than like a lot of people in my own family or people that I know. And so I think what's interesting is not to think about the way in which like policies affect me like in the negative, but to think about the ways in which policies affect me in the positive, right? Like I had this moment where I got into like a small fender bender in New Mexico and like the officer was Latinx and then the person I ran into is native and like in New Mexico the relationship between police and native people is like very similar to the relationship between like our African-American and our black communities and like police systems so like I had this moment of like kind of fear where I was like wow he's gonna get charged more heavily than I will or like be more mistreated than I am because I'm like a woman and I'm like fair-skinned and it was interesting because to even have that thought, I had this step where I was like, you know, nervous because I was like, no, like, I just want a police report, right? Like, I just want this for the insurance. But then I think those are those actions and those are those day-to-day moments where, like, there are times in which I can use my privilege to, like, get me out of certain situations and others cannot. And I think that's, like, the day-to-day being mindful of. Even, like, when I was taking the bus in L.A., like, people who were, you know, being an able-bodied person, I think there are moments where, like, I had to keep buses so that people in wheelchairs could get on because bus drivers were like not wanting to pick up people in wheelchairs. Right. And like making sure to use that privilege. So I think in that way is kind of where politics in my life are right now. When you think about your gender and the role your gender plays in your life, your personal, your Mm -hmm. professional life, what experiences have you had where your gender has played a role? The last couple of years have been so income and like race based in terms of where I've been locating my time. I think this is the year where it's like, yeah, I'm pissed off that girls aren't advancing in science and math and technology and engineering at the same rates that like men are. And like women are upholding whole systems, not just family systems, but political systems. Thank you to black women in our last presidential election. Like the more I'm in the workplace, the more I've seen those inequities of like, Maybe my male colleagues or the, you know, men in other organizations are getting a lot more credit for, like, things that I, I'm doing. <laughs> like You're seeing, um, like, you are I, actually seeing that today. Yeah. And I, and I think I was there before. Like, I had an experience growing up where, like, one of my classmates, I was like, where do you think we'll be at our 10-year reunion? And I remember it was, like, it was me and three other men. And, like, one of the guys took it upon himself to be like, oh, you'll be a computer scientist oh, you'll be, like, some founder of a nonprofit. And then he turned to me, who 
to toot my own horn, like, was smarter than these other two men by far. And he was like, oh, and I think you'd make a really great secretary. And I was, like, 15. I don't know if I told you that story. No. You but don't. I was, like, I think in the moment I was, like, oh, I'm hurt. And then now that I think about it, I'm, like, oh, that's bullshit. Did you feel like you, because you were a woman, you were therefore less capable? And then mm-hmm. did that then translate to you feeling like you weren't applying for positions yeah. that you were actually qualified for? It did take a toll on my self-confidence because then I, I thought I couldn't apply for things like engineering. I remember having this irrational fear that Yale were like, I couldn't do an economics class. And then I got into grad school and it turns out like, actually, I'm really good at economics, like award-winning TA now. Like, you know, and I think a lot of when I got to grad school, I realized my true talent. And I think part of this was being a woman and just being told like people like to tell you whatever they want about you. And I think the other part was like believing them because I didn't know my own worth and then getting into an environment where my worth was so clear was really helpful because I think like that's why like gender issues are I think now starting to come to the forefront because my worth was so clear in the last couple of years being in L.A. that I can't now no longer accept the way people treated me prior. But yeah, no, I think I think it held me back in terms of sector not that I don't love education, but like now I'm like. Damn, I could have I could have been in education and I could have been a badass scientist. Like I could do both. Maybe I will. We'll see. What is your relationship to religion? Oh, it's so important. I was telling a friend that in terms of dating, what's really hard is to be in an era where a lot of people are are just non-religious. Like it's hard to date because there's when it comes to religions, there are decisions I've made in my life that are literally like I prayed, I asked God, creator, universe, help me decide this next step. Like, New Mexico was one of them, right? You know how conflicted I was of, like, do I do TFA or not? And I think those are those moments of faith in my life that make it hard for me to live in an environment where, like, other people don't decide things like that. So, yeah, you know, religion is very important to me. Is that from your family? Did you always feel that way? Like, have there ever been times where you felt unsure yeah, my family's very religious, and my town is like prides itself as having the most different religious institutions per capita. But I think that aside, like for me early on, I had had an experience where I couldn't chalk it up to anything but something divine. And it was always this innate knowing and this innate understanding that like I was going to be asked to do something really, really a lot bigger than myself in this world. That was just something that had always been with me since I was little. What are some pieces of content that you think have defined a value for you in some way or have changed how you think or changed your life in some way? Mm, The alchemist. I think what it defined for me is like this idea that the journey is the path. It was what he learned along the way about himself that allowed him to like then be ready to receive the blessings. Um, Bless Me Ultima by Rudolfo Anaya. It's set in New Mexico, but I read it when I was little. It's about this kid who goes through this journey of questioning his religion. And I think that was super critical for me, too, as like a more spiritual person to kind of look at religion in different ways, but also look at race. Right. He's like a Latinx boy and he has all of these really good questions about class and race and inequity and injustice. I think I think that's it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. This month is all about that second link in each interview chain. 
then April will be all about the next step beyond. Next week, former Business Week editor-in-chief Megan Murphy is on deck. I'm sitting down today with my partner, Hillary Rosen. Hi, honey. Thanks for having me. <laughs> for the next episode in Jing and Danielle's chain, Danielle gets to pick someone from her life who she wants to interview. Stay tuned for episode 10 to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brewer. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.